0: You know what I realized watching that? We eat a lot of food, don't we? <laughs> just about every pitcher somebody had food in their mouth. Well, that's exciting. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can open to Zechariah, and uh, it may take you a little bit of time to find that. That's not a book that, uh, that's typically referenced in churches, one of the minor prophets. But I want to introduce this first. I hope the title of this message will wake you up for just a few minutes. It's called Unimpressive. Unimpressive. Man, what a buzzkill, right? That's the word God has for us this morning. The semester I started seminary in Southern California, we went through new student orientation. We would all introduce ourselves, we'd tell where we came from, and then we would answer some questions that the Dean of Students would put to us. He'd ask, Why are you here? Where's why are you here? Where are you planning to go? What do you want to do? Basically, what's your goal after graduating? One man, the semester I started, answered that question without hesitating. I don't even think the dean got the question out of his mouth before that gentleman stood up and he said this. He said, to bring the work of Satan to a screeching halt in the Middle East, and he sat down. I was like, man, that was impressive. It was loud. It was bold. He was confident. Impressive. And then I started, you ever do this? He said that, and you're thinking, it's going to be my turn. And man, my answer is little. <laughs> it's tiny. Mine was just to, to graduate with my marriage intact, or to graduate with my sanity intact, or to graduate and then go to a church that will actually accept me. I had small goals, unimpressive goals. I didn't have a purpose like his, to, stop, to bring the work of Satan to a screeching halt. I didn't even know if the enemy even knew me. You know, that, there's that passage... Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who's Tommy? Tommy who? I never heard of him. He's not doing anything. He's not penetrating the darkness of my kingdom. But you know what? Underneath that question sometimes is a bigger question is, does, does God know who I am? Does God see my small, ordinary, unremarkable, unimpressive life, or is, does God see it, and is He just as sad and frustrated and disappointed in me as I am? If we're honest, that's a question sometimes we ask. Well, after seminary, I started asking that question. I was feeling sorry for myself. My life felt small and boring. I'm just, we're really honest at Grace Life. If this is your first time here, I hope you're not shocked by, we we try to be really honest. I graduated, and that's what I was thinking in my mind. I was feeling sorry for myself. My life felt small and boring. My ministry looked unimpressive. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. When those things are happening, you're a hot box for temptation. I started to look around at other churches, and other Christian leaders, and other pastors, and other people, and I grew envious. I grew envious and jealous of what they were doing, and covetous even, which is a sin, right? It's one of the commandments, thou shalt not covet. And that turned into something really hideous and ugly in my heart. I started despising my little ministry and my small life. Have you ever done that? The compare game is an endless hamster wheel. It, just, it leads you in a really dark place where bad things happen. I started to despise the work of God. Why? Because it just seems so ordinary. You know, there's a lot, we're doing this one word thing. (laughs) That's a word most people won't put on the card. Lord, do something ordinary in my life, right? We don't like that word. We're allergic to it. In fact, Michael Horton wrote a book, and here's, here's a quote from that book. He said, for many of us, the worst word in our vocabulary is ordinary. Who wants a bumper sticker he says, who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary? Who wants to be an ordinary person in an ordinary town, a member of an ordinary church with ordinary friends and callings? That's a rhetorical question he's writing. Nobody does. Nobody wants that. And then I stumbled across, I was feeling sorry for myself, and I stumbled across this verse in Zechariah. And you ever do that? You're reading like your daily reading, and this, this verse jumps out at you. And this verse haunted me in a good way. Here's what the prophet says. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. It's a promise. It's a direct promise to people who are in the middle of despising their small, unremarkable, unimpressive, lackluster life or family or marriage or singleness or vocational calling or hobby or whatever it is. Hopefully this message will resonate with everybody here at some point in your life. If you're not feeling small and unremarkable, just stand by because seasons come and go in and out of our life like that. For Christians too, we're not impervious to that. So what I want to do today really fast is going to be a short service or short sermon. Service may be longer because we're going to have a lunch. What I want to do today is unleash a short, powerful truth in the passages we're going to read. And this would be cool, man. We're reading from three different passages in the Old Testament. If you've ever read like a chronological Bible reading plan, uh, that's one of the only times that these three different books of the Bible get slammed together, Haggai, Ezra, and Zechariah, because they're all among the same time period in the Bible. When the, uh, the legendary temple that that God used Solomon to build, it got ripped down by the Babylonians because of Israel's sin. You remember this? They built this amazing temple filled with gold, beautiful, elaborate, impressive, remarkable, all the things that so often were not, and then they sinned, they disobeyed, they broke fellowship and covenant with God, and so he sent the Babylonians in there to tear down their temple. In 70 years, they were exiled, and then 70 years were fulfilled, and God sent them back to rebuild And they came back to a city that was razed to the ground, Jerusalem. The walls were broken down. The temple was burned. Most of the population was scattered. Not even everyone came back. There's a small remnant of people that came back, believed God, and they've got a lot of work to do. And the work was painstaking. It took them 20 years to rebuild this temple, and it was not easy at all. They faced opposition, internal, external. They ran out of resources, so they had to do some fundraising. They didn't have enough money. Uh, the, the work got interrupted, halted, stalled. It sounds like a church plant, really, is what it sounds like. But these people eventually reached the day when the first stage of their rebuilding was complete. And it was this. They, they finished the foundation of the temple. That was it. Just a foundation. It was finished, and so they had a celebration. God wanted them to stop, pause, reflect, and be grateful and thankful and celebrate what God was doing. So, for many people, this was their first temple to ever see, and they were blown away by it. They were blowing trumpets, they were singing, but other people who were a little bit older and had seen the original temple, what do you think their emotions were? They were very sad. They wept. They cried. They'd been in captivity for decades. They came back to this wrecked city, and this was a much smaller foundation than the original temple was. So, they were devastated. So, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to read these passages together. And then I want to make some remarks on them and we'll move on. So this is Ezra. This is, here it is. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple, and you're going to see that word over and over in this passage. Foundation, foundation. It's just a small beginning, but it's important. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now, this is, another prophet. this is a prophet's perspective. Check this out. Haggai, chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet, now, be strong, O Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that was made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And then a few verses later, verse 7, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. He's saying, you think you have a money problem? (laughs) The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. Peace declares the Lord of hosts. And then this verse in Zechariah 4. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, who are you, O great mountain? Talk about opposition. Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. He's saying you're going to finish the roof eventually that's going to be built on this foundation. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Well, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Here's what I want to do. I want to pull out three things, three realities from this passage, real briefly, that we see that God shows us. And, and some of you may be thinking, what in the world is this pastor doing? It's eight-year celebration. This room's filled up. People are watching from home, and the word is unimpressive. What are you trying? to kind of a buzzkill, pastor. What's going on? What's going on is, I think, so often what derails a church is, is we start to think we're something special. In the wrong way, because we are someone special to God, aren't we? I mean, God has filled us with a spirit. He is with us. But sometimes we, we forget and we think, you know what? God put me here to make my name great and to make the name of Grace Life great and to make myself famous. That's not why we're here. And God has to remind us of that sometimes. And so this is preventative medicine. Our church is in a really strategic place. We're looking at property, we're wanting to have a building. We've been here for eight years. God's doing some amazing things, and God wants us to stay humble and remember what He told these people so long ago. So, point number one, here it is. Sometimes God shatters our dreams. Now, did you really need a verse from the Old Testament to, to be reminded of that? Listen, I told you we got honest in here. How many people would want to raise their hand? How many people have your dreams shattered by God? Okay, thank you. <laughs> the rest of you, stand by. <laughs> All right? Listen, God's not trying to crush you. God's saving you when he does that. One of the most amazing passages in the Old Testament to me is when God, through two different prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, he sends those prophets to these people who are weeping and he pokes them on the shoulder and he spins them around and he says, hey, do you remember that other temple that God built through Solomon? It was really special, wasn't it? This one's nothing in your eyes, is it? And you think, is God mocking them? What's God doing? God has to do that sometimes to us. You know that? You know what he's doing? He's, he's demanding that we be honest with him. God is not content to let us walk through this life and pretend like so many people do. How you doing? I'm fine. I'm great. I'm doing awesome. Never been better. I'm making it. God refuses to let them do that. He, he comes and he says, hey, I'm God. I'm here. And there's a real breakthrough on the other side of your breakdown. You've got to get honest, though. This is, this is unimpressive, this is unremarkable, this is lackluster, this is sad and disappointing, isn't it? And the people have to admit, yeah, it is. And God, then he says something really important, he says, in your eyes. <laughs> see, we had these dreams, we want to do this, and maybe even we want to do it for God. I had this plan, I, listen, I'll be really honest with you, when Jeff Eckert and I planted this church, you, you got to know, man, there's, God has to deal with pride and arrogance in pastors too. I see Jeff and I thought, man, will this be, will this be big enough? Seriously. Well, I don't know, Jeff. We may have to open up the first Sunday, the two back rooms. <laughs> oh, did God shatter my dream? Because it was my dream. That was my dream. That was Tommy's dream. It was Tommy's agenda. It wasn't God's. God knew how full of pride and arrogance I was and how I needed to be humbled to the ground. Sometimes God has to shatter our dream because he, he loves us too much to let us live under the illusion that our lives are going to go viral or trending on social media, right? He wants... To encourage the Israelites, but first, they have to be honest. It's remarkable. This is what I think. I think it was uh, Oswald Chambers said this. He said, "It's it's doubtful whether or not God can use a man or a woman greatly until he hurts them deeply." The people that day who wept the loudest were those who remembered the former temple and all of its glory. You know what that word glory means? It just means heavy, weighty, significant. God is saying, this doesn't seem very heavy to you. This doesn't seem very big, very remarkable, very special to you. But what he's going to tell them is, it's special to me. And you remember that other temple? There's a reason it's not here anymore. You know, they filled it with their glory, and I'm not interested in that. God's not interested in you filling your life up with your glory. The quicker he shatters that dream, the better off for you and for him. And he had to do that to the Israelites. And he makes them a prompt, a promise. He says, you remember that other temple? Remember why I tore it down? I'm going to fill this temple with a better glory. It's going to be bigger and more clear than the, than the last one was. How many people in here know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Okay, great. He was a German theologian, incredibly gifted, sharp mind, young, just crystal clear thinking about the church and, the, and the, the ministry of Christ and the doctrine and the atonement and all of that. And he caught the attention of a lot of people all around the world that invited him to come and, and pastor their church or come and live there. He was invited to come and live to America and teach at a seminary. He was invited to go to London and, and do two churches with German-speaking congregations. He was invited to go and live in India. And all of this while the German church was being persecuted, and the Nazis and the Third Reich were just destroying Christian churches and pastors there. And he had this gnawing, agonizing voice in the back of his mind that said, Dietrich, you better go back to Germany. Eventually, he did. And he ended up leading a ragtag group of disciples at Finkelwald, and eventually they were arrested, and most of them were martyred for their faith. But he wrote a book when he was there, and it's called Life Together, and here's what he said. This is so powerful. Check this out. He said those who love the dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest and sacrificial. And then he says this to pastors. Man, this like leveled me. He said when pastors lose faith in a Christian community in which They have been placed and begin to make accusations against it. They had better examine themselves first to see whether the underlying problem is not their own idealized image, which should be shattered by God. You know what he's saying there? He's saying often God has to show you that the life that you're wanting to live for God is just simply an idol. And God has to do you a favor and he has to preserve his own glory and honor by shattering that. So when your dream sometimes is lying in tatters and it's shattered, don't think that God has let you down. Sometimes that's the very beginning of God rescuing you from yourself, right? So often God does that. Here's the second point, point number one. That's the fastest first point I've ever made, isn't it? That's encouraging. It can be done. Remind me of that, all right? Second point, God values our unimpressive achievements. You know that? God showed up that day. Because he's the one that sent them there. He's the one that gave them favor. You know, Cyrus was was an unbelieving Gentile king, and God commanded Cyrus to send Israel back to Jerusalem with resources to rebuild the temple. He even gave this edict. He said, if anybody opposes this work, let a timber be pulled from their own house and hang them on it. God did all of that through an unbelieving pagan Gentile king. To just show Israel how sovereign and how powerful he was. And how much in control he is. And how he orchestrates history to its ultimate course. God sent them there that day. He gave a, a faith promise to the, to the remnant of people. And he said, if you go, I'm going to be with you. And what you're doing may look small in your eyes. But listen, keep at it. Stay at it. Because I'm going to be in the midst. My spirit's going to be there working with you. Listen, God loves things that are unimpressive. Do you realize when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. When he left his earthly life, do you know how many people he left behind? There's more people in this building than Jesus left behind in an upper room praying. 120 people huddled together, shaking with fear, praying until the Spirit came down and filled them. Do you know that most, most church growth experts would find some type of criticism? Wouldn't they? They would find some type of criticism. Well, Jesus, he gave, this guy gave it his best shot. He only had 120 people. Man, we can fix that. We can do some marketing and we can get some social media stuff going and we can really make this place sing. Jesus loves small, unremarkable, unimpressive things like a widow's mite, a boy's lunch, the incarnation, right? God uses small things and does powerful things through them. There was a woman named Tish Warren. She was part of a Christian movement that promoted radical world-changing lifestyle. She did mission work in Africa. She organized protests in college. She participated in various radical communities. And then she met somebody. She got married. She had kids, and she became a homemaker. And she wrote a book. This is what she said. Let me put this up here. She said, what I need now is the courage to face an ordinary day, the bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life, and the grace to know that even when I've done Nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting that the Lord notices me and is fond of me, and that is enough. She would go on to say, everybody wants a revolution. Nobody wants to do the dishes. It's true, isn't it? So this day for the Israelites was small, it was despised, and it was empty. And listen, maybe, maybe you're facing that right now. Maybe you don't even know it. God brought you here because you're living this repeat groundhog empty day over and over. It's just empty. Do you believe that God meets you in your emptiest day? Havens call one of my favorite Christian groups. I don't know if they're together anymore. Anyway, they wrote a song called The Emptiest Day, and I think the lyrics are profound. The author describes God. Listen to these lyrics. They say you live in hospitals and trenches and towers in the sky, but I'm not dying or fighting any wars except on the inside. The words I find impossible to mention are written on a star. They say I can find you in a flower, but I need you in my car. When you wrap your arms around me, I can walk away or I can face the emptiest day. And that's what God does to the Israelites in this story. He walks up to them, taps them on the shoulder, turns them around, and he embraces him. And he says, to you, this is an empty day, but to me, it's full. It's filled with my glory and with the anticipation of how I'm going to fulfill my promise. And I'm going to make you a light post to the people, a beacon, a lighthouse. I want to bless the nations through this place. I think the view that many people have today of what radical looks like is this mountain-moving, culture-shaping, charge-the-hill accomplishment. And so often, guys, that's just not the way God works. And we miss sometimes what God's doing. Seriously, putting with Megan this slideshow together this week That that slideshow represented a lot of little moments, but God was there. He was doing something amazing and powerful. That's why the faces were so radiant, and that's why we planted this church, man, so that God can meet us in our lowest. Seventy percent of churches are smaller than 100 people. Did you know that? God is in the business of using normal and unremarkable churches and people to accomplish His divine plans. So don't ever think, whatever it is, a lot of people struggle with whatever job they've been called to. And they think, man, this is a waste of time. It's small. It's beneath me. Listen, trust God to show himself great in your smallness. That's really the only way he works, guys. He's not interested in our glory. He's here to show his. Point three, fast point here. What God starts, he finishes. God says, forget about that temple. I want to do something new, and I want you to participate. I'm going to fill this place with my glory. And that's why he says, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be lazy. Stay at it. Get the work. Be strong. Keep working. I'm with you. The New Testament says it this way. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So I want to close with this. Every single one of us today is guilty of despising small things that God is intricately involved in. Wouldn't you admit that? That's a sin. That's a sin. We despise the things that God cherishes the most. We're all guilty of that. So this promise, who has despised, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. How can that be true? How can God make that promise to guilty people who are under the condemnation and curse of the law? Well, check this out. Nobody thought much of Jesus, did they? When Jesus Christ came, guys, think about this. Think of all the descriptions of Jesus he was unremarkable and unimpressive by the standards of that day. Seriously, he came from what town did he come from? Bethlehem. He grew up where? Nazareth. Can anything good come out of those places, they ask? They couldn't believe that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, just came from the wrong side of the track, so to speak, right? Let me read this, let me read this verse to you from Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Iniquities. That is the gospel promise that this day was just simply foreshadowing. When God was saying, forget that other temple, I'm going to build a new temple, you know ultimately what that was pointing to? To us, to Jesus. We're the temple that God sends His very presence into us. We are a mobile temple that God wants to send to the whole world and reach all the nations. That's why we're here. That's what God's purpose is in leaving you here. He could have brought you to heaven the second He saved you and spared you a lot of pain and agony. But God kept us here because he has a purpose for us. So don't think, my friends, that your small, boring, unremarkable, unimpressive life is, is not valuable to God. It is. God wants to use you. He will use you. He will secure glory for himself because, listen, this small, unremarkable, unremarkable life, this broken vessel, as the, as the New Testament calls it, he's filled with his treasure, Right? He gets more glory that way when broken vessels carry the good news of Jesus' rescue. So, I want to close with this. Have you asked God's forgiveness for all the ways we despise Jesus, all the ways we despise the good news of the gospel, all the ways we despise God's wisdom and, and God's control and God's law and God's love? We've all spurned that. We've all despised that. Jesus will forgive us when we, we repent and turn from our sin and trust Him. That's the message that, that, that this church is here to proclaim, and that's the message God wants to fill us with and carry to wherever it is you go when you leave here and, uh, and start fresh again tomorrow morning. Amen? So here's what I want to do. I want to pray, and then we're going to go to the next stage in our service, which is those one-word cards. So hold on to those. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. For these promises that you've given us, thank you that you care about what in our eyes is often small, unimpressive, unremarkable, lackluster, and ordinary. Lord, those all describe Jesus in his humanity. He wasn't anything to look at. He was a man of grief, acquainted with sorrows, and so many people despised him because they couldn't imagine the God of heaven doing something through such a plain and ordinary man. And Lord, that paved the way for what our lives are to be like. Faithful to you, but often unimpressive in our eyes and in the eyes of others. The gospel is a foolish, shameful message to so many people, but it's the power of God and to salvation to those who believe. I pray every single person in this building watching from home has believed that promise, has turned from their sin and embraced you, Lord. And I pray for the next section of our service, Lord, this will be significant for people to just think what they want to see you do this year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.